Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, amending the First Amendment. So Richard, we have Democrats in the Senate right now pledging to vote on a constitutional amendment this year that would change the parameters by which Congress can regulate political speech. And this is born largely out of the frustration that progressives have had in recent years over a couple of Supreme Court decisions that have limited that power, namely Citizens United a few years ago and then the much more modest ruling earlier this year in the McCutcheon case. Yes. Uh, what are they trying to do? Explain for our audience the basic provisions of this proposed amendment and then we'll break them down and allow you to analyze them. Yeah, I think what's really going on here is a battle over the appropriate ways in which you start to think about speech. The traditional view was that economic liberties were subject to all sorts of dominations by dominant firms and so that what you had to do was to have womb-to-tomb regulation of labor markets on the grounds that the government had plenary power over the marketplace. Uh, the view with respect to political speech is that this was an island independent of government control and that the forces of pros and cons would balance each other out in a marketplace of idea which ought not to be regulated. On the issue of campaign finances, starting back at about the you know, about the time of the bipartisan statute in two thousand one or two, uh, the perception started to shift. The Democrats now believed in the progressive stuff that the same kind of domination that large firms and corporations and unions perhaps had over the economic sector also applied to the political sector. And if it applies to the political sector with respect to speech, it means that the appropriate response is the same kind of regulation on access and expenditures that in fact apply with respect to ordinary markets. Uh, the point is of course not completely new because there's always been regulation of the uh, speech market and campaigns. Everybody admits that bribery and extortion are not part of the picture. Certain forms of fraud, although it's difficult to define, may subject you to various kinds of sanctions. But in a case called called Buckley and DeLeo decided in 1976, essentially what the Supreme Court did was to get a compromise position in which you could regulate the amount of contributions that people could make to political candidates and to political parties, but you could not regulate the amount of money that somebody could spend on himself. And it's quite clear after Citizens United brought up the specter of corporate speech and the McCutcheon case, I guess it was, brought up the question of whether or not you could have aggregate limits on campaign contributions, uh, the mood on the part of the Democrats is hardened. They're convinced that this is now a wasteland in which economic domination takes place and they're trying to subject to the same kind of congressional leg legislation and oversight that exists with economic markets. So quickly, how, how does this change that? Nobody th thinks it's going to pass this time around. It may come back up in the future, but assume it did. What could Congress do then that they can't do now? Well, I mean, if you go and read the statute, essentially what they can do is cast aside any and all limitations that the First Amendment has traditionally understood imposes on the various rights of free speech. And, and what they do is they start, and, and it's a well-drafted provision in terms of their objective, and they said to advance the fundamental principle of political equality for all and to protect the integrity of the legislative and electoral processes. This is the end, and their definition of what counts as uh, political equality is it's not only one man or one person, one vote. It's one man, one person, one dollar. So what they're trying to do is to 
get the idea of taking wealth out of politics so that small and rich people alike can essentially participate in the same level. And then it says, look, Congress shall have the power to regulate the raising and spending of money and in-kind equivalents. They don't want any evasion with respect to federal elections. And then it gives you an including, which means you could certainly do this and there's a lot else you could do beside. So the way in which I read the provision, I think is the way in which it's intended, is that ostensible First Amendment arguments with respect to the freedom of speech of corporations or ordinary persons are completely subject to constitutional oversight. And then there is a further provision which says that in section three, nothing in this article shall be construed to grant Congress the power to abridge the freedom of the press. Who the press is, is going to become much more important if this amendment should ever pass. Because right now the press guarantee and the speech guarantee kind of overlap. But if you have complete plenary power over speech and no power whatsoever over the press, there are going to be a lot of people out there who are going to say, you know, I'm press after all. I'm not not a mere speaker, including arguably, uh, if you think about it, the Citizens United, which was not a business corporation. So this statute, as far as I can tell, is designed to not overturn Citizens United and McCutcheon, but to essentially invalidate every effort on the part of the Supreme Court to knock down various efforts to do what the Democrats want to be done to, quote-unquote, level the playing field uh, with respect to campaign expenditures. To that point that you just mentioned on freedom of the press, let me read you something. I'm not sure if you saw this. This is from uh, Matthew Frank from the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton writing a National Review online. He he found a contradiction there in talking about not abridging the freedom of the press. He wrote – quoting here – This really makes no sense. The First Amendment protects two kinds of communication, the spoken and the written, or if it helps to consider the receiving end of communication, utterances to the ear and to the eye. My freedom of speech is trammeled if I'm told to shut my mouth so people will not hear my opinions. My freedom of the press is trammeled if I'm told to stop writing and publishing written statements so people will not read them. Anyone who manages to disseminate his views by means of the written word or visual image is exercising the First Amendment freedom of the press. He's basically making the the criticism that we have come to think of freedom in the press as meaning freedom of the media, whereas it's really supposed to – it's really supposed to protect anybody who's communicating even on an individual level. Uh, Do you you agree with that criticism? Well, I think what's really happened is he's being a little bit too rigid on what we mean by freedom of the press. That is right now we have the – same freedom preserved in the First Amendment. I don't think there's anybody who thinks that NBC and CBS and Fox News are not protected under the press provisions. I think what they do is they believe that the press has evolved and now that it's possible to have communications at a distance by voice, uh, and that's going to be subject to the same kind of protections elsewhere. So I think, in effect, that the media would certainly be given a protection here. I mean, it would be almost crazy to assume that if you're a newspaper that owns a TV or a radio affiliate, uh, you you can do whatever you want on the one and you can't do anything at all on the other. I think the really hard line is going to be quite different from that is how do you decide which media account is the press and which ones don't not. So take something like little old Richard Epstein. I mean I do a regular column on the Hoover uh, website and I do these regular broadcasts with respect to you. I'm not affiliated with any press organization but I'm a regular speaker. Uh, do I get to shoot my mouth off or could the United States government say, you know, 
Professor Epstein, we think that you've spoken enough. Please be silent during the rest of this campaign. You're just trying to speak. You're not trying to press. I don't know what the answer to that question is. I can tell you what the judicial response, which is likely to be, which is to be horrified by all of this stuff and to assume that this so-called amendment to the First Amendment is not really an amendment at all, but something almost illicit. And so I think I would be entitled to get this kind of protection. But it's not at all clear how these definitions start to work. You don't have to worry about the line between speech and press if they're both subject to basically the same protections, which is the way it is that the First Amendment seems to work, so that any difference between the two of them are really esoteric. But the moment you start to draw the categorical line, that boundary, which is fuzzy to begin with, is going to become deeply contested. It's just one of the major kind of flaws that this particular amendment has put forward. They obviously have to have it. They don't want to shut down the New York Times uh, or the Wall Street Journal, although they might choose one but not the other. Uh, And so therefore, they kind of carve this thing out, but they do not think about the systematic implications of what they have done. Senator uh, Ted Cruz of Texas last week wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal about this very issue. He was, like you, very critical, and he really honed in on the language in this amendment, which you mentioned in passing a moment ago about allowing Congress to regulate in-kind contributions. We we should probably linger on that for a moment because that's not necessarily a household phrase for people who don't spend a lot of time on on politics. Explain what it means and then, if you will, respond to Senator Cruz. He seems to think that provision is the one that gives Congress essentially endless power to regulate political conduct. Well, I mean he's kind of right. We don't know what an in-kind equivalent is, but let's just start with the obvious cases. Raising and spending of money. Well, If you give cash, that's money. What about if you write a check to somebody? Is that money or is that an in-kind equivalent? Well, who knows? Because, if again, if you don't care about what a constitutional amendment was, the word money basically for most people means cash or any of its close substitutes, check, credit card payments, and all the rest of that stuff. In-kind equivalents probably is meant to go much further than that and to cover essentially uh, the gift of goods and services to various people. Well, maybe just goods and not services, but probably both. So the way in which I would see it is if, in fact, you wanted to recruit people to distribute flyers. The Congress could regulate the kinds of flyers you could use and could probably set the wages that you'd have to pay for the people who want to distribute the flyers on the grounds that this combined action, which has both labor and um, goods associated with it, is an in-kind equivalent or a substitute for cash. This means, in effect, that you get a Republican Congress in there and they could pass a regulation which says no member of a labor union is allowed to distribute campaign literature for a political candidate. And, you know, they say, look, we're willing to apply this to Democratic unions and to Republican unions. You mean to tell us that there are more Democratic unions than there are Republicans? I would have never believed it. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, you could start saying that thing, at which point you're going to have the question as to whether or not there's some kind of an equal protection, a balanced restriction, which is not actually built into the language of this particular amendment that, well, it just gives it an absolute categorical power to do these things. So, I think, in effect, that Cruz is right on this point, and I thought the editorial was was pretty strong, actually.
actually, is I think that in-kind equivalence means any alternative resources used for exactly the same particular end. So bake sales, beware. You're going to be covered by this particular kind of provision, which is one of the reasons why it's so dangerous. And the reason they put it in, of course, is they well know that if I can't give them money, then maybe I'll give them some kind of professional expertise. I'll let them use my house free of charge for a party and for all the rest of that. And things which are today are beyond the scope of government regulation will be swept in it. The, the, the breadth of this particular provision, if you understand it, is in fact absolutely staggering. And, you know, when they start talking about the kind of things that, you know, you can do and, and put in there that they mentioned, i.e. the amount of contributions to candidates for elections and so forth, um, and the amount of money that they can spend, it means that you regulate all the cash that can go into a campaign, all the cash that somebody has. You could probably mandate uh, various kinds of government matching grants to people who raise money, something which the Supreme Court has looked askance upon. It's a major revolution. And as far as I can tell, disastrous with respect to its overall systematic implications. The idea that Congress, which has a huge incumbent bias, should take this power upon itself is to me essentially an open invitation to the worst kind of factional fighting. And you could just imagine, you know, you get the Republicans in control and they try to entrench themselves. The Democrats do the same thing. Nobody who proposed this amendment has started to think systematically of what kinds of legislation would get through and what kinds of social and political behaviors it would induce. So the last question that I'll ask you, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, consensus viewpoint, and I think even most of the Democrats endorsing this would, at least behind closed doors, concede that this is this is not going anywhere this year in terms of passage, partially because the bar is so high when you're talking about constitutional amendments. Two-thirds of the Congress, three-quarters of the states. I'm reminded of an interview done for Hoover a couple of years ago on an episode of Uncommon Knowledge where Justice Scalia told Peter Robinson that if if he could amend – one aspect of the Constitution, it would be the amendment process itself, that he would actually make it a little bit easier than it is now. Looking at, at this instance and just considering you know, on a broader basis the kind of amendments we've seen proposed over the last couple of decades, uh, do you agree with that or is this a good example of why the bar should be precisely that high? Well, I mean you know, it, a lot of it depends on what you think to be the stock and flow of the amendments are going through. If the amendments are going to be all in this kind of progressive and populist tradition, I think 110 percent of the states is the appropriate number <laughs> and, and that's obviously not going to take place in anything like the short run. No, I think it ought to be done difficultly but I also think as I argued in the paper that Citizens United, it gets – you know, perhaps the worst rap of any rather sensible kind of decision. The simple point is that it's a case which says that if you do money in your personal capacity and you're protected, when you incorporate and get limited liability under state law, it doesn't mean that the federal government or the states can lower the boom on you. And what you do is you say, oh, incorporation imposes certain risks to general creditors, tort creditors in particular. And so if you have a dangerous business, you have to buy insurance. But everything that you want to do to limit a corporation, ought to be done with respect to the perils that incorporation creates. And it doesn't create any peril here. In fact, I wrote something when I gave my inaugural Tisch lecture here at NYU some, I guess it's now four years ago. I'm saying if you actually look at Citizens United, the only corporations who want this provision are political operations like Citizens United, which only makes films. And no business wants to go into a public posture where they start denouncing various kinds of political candidates because the people who 
agree with them, they won't change their behavior. The people who are opposed to them will absolutely scream bloody murder and you drive yourself out of the consumer markets. It's the AFL-CIO, the Chamber of Commerce. The only guys who really want this power as a business matter are people who don't do trade with the public at large. The rest of these guys go around now trying to figure out ways to insulate their board of directors from various requests by outside groups that they give to political campaigns because they know it's a no-win problem. So if it's self-limiting as a serious business matter, what you're really worried about are these various kinds of trade groups one way or another. And the only way you're going to stop these guys from acting is to basically reduce the power of Congress in the state so that everything is not up to political grabs. Because if you stop it with respect to political campaigns um, and campaign contributions, it's going to surface with respect to particular statutes where the lobbying in both the state houses and in the Capitol in Washington are going to become acute. Uh, This is not an area in which you can change the campaign or the financing rules to make up for the incredible deficiencies in a government which has far too much power to regulate the overall structure of our economy. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.